I am Srimati Karuna, the director of the Gandhi Memorial Center in Washington, D.C. I bring to you this series, Speaking of Gandhi, sharing the messages from the life of the Mahatma. William Stuart Nelson was born an American in Paris, Kentucky in 1895. He served in World War I and went on to receive his B.A. from Howard University in 1920. After attending schools in France and Germany, he received a B.D. from Yale in 1924 and returned to Howard to teach. In 1931, he became the first black president of Shaw University and later the first president of Dillard University. He finished his career at Howard, serving as Dean of the School of Religion from 1940 to 1948, Dean of the University from 1948 to 61, and Vice President of Special Projects from 61 to 67. Dr. Nelson was an ordained minister, and he was the only member of the Howard faculty to hold the special positions of Dean of the University and then Vice President for Special Projects. He was also a world student and traveler, and he founded the scholarly publication Journal of Religious Thought. Nelson made several trips to India. In 1946, Dr. Nelson and his wife, Blanche Wright Nelson, went to India on a special mission for the American Friends Service Committee of Philadelphia. During his visit in India, Dr. Nelson walked from village to village with Gandhiji in Bengal province in an effort to bring together Hindu and Muslim communities. Gandhiji wrote in a letter from Srirampur on December 3, 1946, about the prayer meeting in which Dr. Nelson recited the words to a hymn for all gathered at the prayer meeting. It was later published in January of 1947 in Harijan newspaper. It was said that by way of introduction, Gandhiji felt very happy that Professor Nelson had shared in the prayer in the ashram prayer meetings. Gandhiji wrote that while in detention at the Aga Khan Palace, Miraben used to sing this particular hymn to him in her rich and sonorous voice. He then paraphrased the meaning of the first three verses and said that the sentiment expressed in it was the same as that found in the Gajendra Moksha Bhajan that was sung in a previous evening's prayer meeting. There was the same reliance upon God, who was the source of all strength, when every other earthly aid failed us. All human power was transient and real safety could lie only when we placed our reliance wholly on God. The verses recited by Dr. William Stuart Nelson, Beneath the shadow of thy throne, thy saints have dwelt serene. Sufficient is thine arm alone, and our defense is sure. Gandhiji referenced that this was a lesson that everyone in Noah Kali sorely needed to learn. 
Later, Dr. Nelson assumed major responsibility for the Friends Service Relief and Rehabilitation Program. In 1949, the Calcutta University Press published his study, entitled Bases of World Understanding. Dr. Nelson then returned to India in 1958 as a Fulbright Research Scholar to further study Gandhiji's influence on Indian life and thought. Dr. William Stuart Nelson also corresponded regularly with Martin Luther King, Jr. When Nelson sent him his 1958 article entitled Satyagraha, Gandhian Principles of Nonviolent Non-Cooperation, King wrote that it was one of the best and most balanced analyses of the Gandhian principles of nonviolent, non-cooperation, that he had read. Though he had returned to India in 1958, Nelson was not able to stay long enough to accompany King on his trip there in 1959. Nelson was active throughout the civil rights movement, speaking at the 1959 Institute on Nonviolence and Social Change and the 1962 Convention of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and joining the Selma to Montgomery March in 1965. He remained a member of various peace and religious groups until his death in 1977. Listen now as Tony Venturas offers a reading of Dr. William Stewart Nelson's words describing the very foundation of the Mahatma's principles of truth and nonviolence. I hope that in this cursory, fragmentary survey of the nonviolent tradition Certain unmistakable signs of the meaning and the underlying principles or forces of nonviolence have appeared. These forces I wish now to summarize and to examine in relation especially to the Gandhian philosophy of nonviolence. First, the origin and support of the spirit of nonviolence in a people or a person has no single explanation. It may be given, that is, born of the culture of one's religious heritage at the mother's knee. Gandhi's nonviolence was in gestation for 3,000 years, at the least, there in the land of Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, Kaba Gandhi, his father, was a man who knew his mind and stood by it. His mother could take the hardest vows without flinching. Again, nonviolence is something born of extremity, of one's own suffering or the sufferings of others. King Ahsoka could not bear the horror on the battlefield of the Kalinga, and he was reborn. Gandhi could not bear the insults inflicted upon himself and upon his fellow dark-skinned people in South Africa, and he began the search for an answer. His search ended in a religion of truth and nonviolence. Whatever the origin of nonviolence, it must be supported by reason. The Buddhists saw clearly that victory by force breeds hatred for the conquered is always unhappy. Gandhi was inspired by the great tradition of Ahimsa in India, but he spent a lifetime elaborating a rational structure for his faith, in which he reasoned, self-sacrifice is superior to the sacrifice of others. If the cause is not right, then only the resistors will suffer. Nonviolence is the aseptic way of permitting the poison to work itself out by letting all the natural forces have full play. Nonviolence arouses the best in others, 
apparent good from violence is temporary, while the evil is permanent. Good brought through forces destroys individuality, while nonviolent non-cooperation preserves individuality. Christian pacifists call upon the New Testament for support, but they have reasons of their own. Quakers, for example, invoke the example of Christ, but they also justify nonviolence as answering that of God in other men, in fighting, they explain. One side or the other loses, while in the nonviolent way, there is the possibility that both sides may win. They point out that force can produce a superficial unity, such as exists in the machine, but not organic unity, born of an appeal to the light within. Tolstoy reasoned that life lost through nonviolent resistance can be only a fraction of that lost in violent revolutions. Manifestly, the nonviolent spirit may be born in and, in respects, nurtured by the workings of all these forces one's heritage, one's extremity, one's reason. But nonviolence lives and grows also by experimentation. Gandhi's life was an experiment with truth and the means to truth, nonviolence. His life, he said, consisted of nothing more than these experiments. In a sense, he was a scientist claiming no finality concerning his conclusions, accepting here and rejecting there, seeking always, as he said, to satisfy his reason and his heart. Second, nonviolence is not a single virtue or a single quality of life. It is a congeries of virtues, of qualities. It is a spirit, a way of life, a religion, or as Gandhi would say, the law of one's being. In Gandhi's structure, there are two basic pillars, truth and ahimsa, or nonviolence, or as he also called it, love. Truth is the end, nonviolence is the means, but the end and the means are bound irrevocably to each other, for a vision of truth is dependent upon the realization of nonviolence. As truth is God, so also love is God. Love surely is not a single virtue, it is a way of life. It is a religion. His life he considered as one indivisible whole. What, he asks, was the larger symbiosis that Buddha and Christ preached? Gentleness and love. Let us look then at the qualities of life which comprise the symbiosis which Gandhi called nonviolence. True nonviolence is religion, for it is a total commitment to that which the individual regards as supreme in the world. In Gandhi, however, and in every authentic example of nonviolence, there is a suspicion of, and often a revolt against otherworldliness, excessive ritualism, insistence upon theology, and ecclesiasticism. Gandhi, however, was wise. Although he considered himself a true reformer, he never permitted his zeal to lead him to the rejection of anything in Hinduism which he considered essential. Nowhere Indeed, was his genius more apparent than in the synthesis he achieved between the history, the language, and certain forms of his religious heritage on the one hand and a radical reinterpretation of religion on the other. For Gandhi, the essence of religion is morality. I reject any religious doctrine that does not appeal to reason and is in conflict with morality. Unreasonable religious sentiment he could tolerate but not when it was immoral. In his philosophy, there is no such thing as a religion overriding morality. For Gandhi, 
the golden rule of conduct, the conduct called nonviolence, was mutual toleration, for he realized that all men will never think as one, and that truth will always appear in fragments. For him, all religions are true. All religions contain some error. All religions were almost as dear to him as his own Hinduism. His prayer for another was not, God, give him the light that thou hast given me, but give him all the light and truth he needs for his highest development. This did not mean an abandonment of what he believed and held dear. He said he would let the winds of doctrine blow through the windows and doors of his house, but he would refuse to be swept off his feet. His own religion he would not abandon, but he would do what he could to improve and purify it. For Gandhi, nonviolence is inconceivable without self-renunciation. I must reduce myself to zero, he said, for ahimsa is the farthest limit of humility. In things material, he did reduce himself to all but zero. Wherever I walked or talked with him, morning, afternoon, or evening, in a remote village or a great city, it was always the same. Nothing of dress or furniture, of house, of livery of any sort to distract. There was no hurry. When he walked into a woman's home and saw the miserable inadequacy of what she wore, he immediately reduced his own dress next to zero and continued to do this until he died. Gandhi knew too well that men who are burdened with possessions they love are never really free. He warned, however, that renunciation of desire is far more important than the renunciation of objects. In abstention, as in all other matters, he emphasized that the spirit was the matter. A man, he says, overscrupulous in diet is an utter stranger to Ahimsa and a pitiful wretch, if he is slave to selfishness and passions and is hard of heart. Nonviolence is compassion. At midnight on August 15, 1947, I listened to Mr. Nehru as he spoke on the transfer of power from the British government to India that was taking place then. He referred to Mr. Gandhi, who was absent, as one who, if he would, wipe every tear from every eye. Nowhere in our time, perhaps even for a thousand years, have men known one with greater compassion for his fellow men. When he could not give them the clothes they needed, he reduced his own to the barest minimum. When the removal of untouchable slums was beyond his power, he made his home in one. He dedicated his life to the breaking of the chains that bound his people. He died a martyr because he dared to fight the cause of a people called enemies by some of his own community, the innocent child and the convict, the harmless beggar at his door, and his alien oppressor all alike were the objects of his compassion. This was a compassion, moreover, that found expression in a great constructive program designed to free the body and lift the spirit, a program of spinning and other crafts, a village organization of education. For him, the spinning wheel became the symbol par excellence of nonviolence. It united the people peacefully and in common trust. It promised relief from degrading poverty. Finally, nonviolence is a weapon of the strong. My final conversation with Mr. Gandhi was in Calcutta in August of 1947, when riots raged between Hindus and Muslims. I raised a question of the efficacy of the nonviolent technique in group relations. He declared that on that subject, he was at the moment in darkness. He had spent almost a lifetime 
teaching that nonviolence was a weapon not of the weak, but of the strong, of those who are able to strike back but will not. He realized then that his people did not understand. This is one of the most difficult aspects of nonviolence to fathom and accept, and explanation for the failure of so many efforts in its name. Nonviolence is not an expedient to be used when no other instrument is available and one is otherwise powerless. It is not a tactic, a strategy, it is a way of life, a religion. It begins in personal relations, in attitudes towards all, the strong and the weak. It expresses itself in thought, in speech, as well as in action. This does not mean that mass nonviolence should never be attempted until every participant has attained perfection. It does require that the ideal be clear, that there be commitment, that people shall be in candidacy for the quality of spirit and the life exemplified in Jesus of Nazareth, and which so lately was revealed among us in Mohandas K. Gandhi. I look forward to sharing with you more messages from the life of Mahatma Gandhi. As he said, my life is my message. Vaishnava